I know it's still so far away, but I am so excited for this dumb handmaiden episode. (laughs) (laughs) Every episode where we're just one week closer to me getting to talk for seven hours straight about Park (laughs) Chan-Woo. Welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. Today's film is from 1935. Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps. You can stream The 39 Steps on the Criterion Channel, Amazon Prime, HBO Max, and other services such as Roku and Hoopla. This film did used to be in the public domain. However, the Supreme Court reclaimed it in 2014. I don't know the details surrounding that, but it is a thing that happened with this movie. Still very easy to find, but it does suck that that can even happen. Yeah, because this was a film produced in Britain. And I guess that means that for a while it wasn't under U.S. copyright law, but now it is. Yeah, like you said, I don't know the details. So... 1935. So a little context. At this point, unemployment is down to about 20%. I think that's a stat from the United States. I don't think that's worldwide or anything. But just a couple years ago, it was 25% in the United States. So there's some improvement. But the Depression is still continuing, uh, despite some help from New Deal policies. And the threat of another Great War is looming. Italy launches an invasion of Ethiopia in October of this year, which really highlights how ineffective the League of Nations is. Nobody really knows what to do about the attack. Sanctions don't really work, so uh, Mussolini is able to completely take over Ethiopia by mid-1936. Nazi Germany is rearming and building a huge air force. The First World War had planes and aircraft, but the Technology has improved so much since then that having a powerful air force really becomes one of the deciding factors in wartime. 1935 is also the year Nazi propaganda film Triumph of the Will comes out. And this is the year the first Technicolor Mickey Mouse cartoon is screened. The Band Concert. Such a creative name. (laughs) almost as creative as flowers and trees you know i don't remember um when our first color film is in our little list but uh i think it's robin hood buckle up if you can make it through the silent films you can make it through the black and white films (laughs) but i tell you this film the 39 steps felt so ahead of its time compared to a lot of the stuff that we've been watching in really subtle ways i think yeah i I love this one. This one is so high octane. My roommate, his words, he said, oh, I was just going to sit in and watch it for a few minutes. But then I just became so invested. And he kept saying it out loud. He was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is so entertaining. And I made I can't even remember what I said. but I made a sly reference to the fact that it was directed by Hitchcock. He was like, this is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. No wonder this is so good. I knew that I wanted an early Hitchcock film on this list uh, because the only Hitchcock films that I have seen are the big ones. Psycho, uh, The Birds, Vertigo, and... Now, have you seen Vertigo? 
Now, what Andrew is referring to is an event in which he and I sat down to watch Vertigo with a group of people late at night, but I just happened to rest my eyes for a little while and um, happened to miss some of the film. Now, a a detail is missing where before before the film started, you had told me I fall asleep every time I try and watch this movie. And I said, well, we can we can brew coffee. We can like I was being so hospitable. And I was like, but I want you to be awake because this is this is my favorite Hitchcock. And uh, and sure enough, I, it was like during my favorite sequence, too. It was during the trippy animated sequence. Uh, and so I, I look over to Arthur and he is just conked out on my couch. And I was just like, well, not this time. Didn't get him this time. But one day. No, I'm really bad at falling asleep during films, especially late at night. It's just what I do. But it just cracked me up how you went into that. And I I set up that screening, had no idea you had a history with the movie or anything. And you said that, and then you just followed right through with it. It just <laughs> You're like, every time. <laughs> I know Vertigo is on lists as like one of the best films ever made. And it is a deserved title. It's a fantastic film. Okay, so I'm looking at a list on Letterboxd that says there's 62 Alfred Hitchcock directed films. There's a super prolific career. Ex- yeah, extremely prolific director. And they all look so ridiculously polished. I mean, he gets a lot of flack for his later films and everything after Marnie. There are four after Marnie. I like them, but I understand why people definitely think that in his older age, he started to fall off the wagon because they don't quite have the level of polish but that's asking for a lot i mean yeah people love to be like oh that's a weak hitchcock it's like okay well (laughs) he also made like so many actual masterpieces that changed the way we see and understand cinema as an art that i think he's allowed to have a couple of weak ones here and there yeah i i I could go on for forever i even consider the 39 steps to be maybe a weaker Hitchcock film, at least from the ones that I've seen. But that's just saying that this film is merely great instead of one of the best films ever made. I, and yeah, it, it, it's so hard for me to to really feel that way about his movies because I love him so much. But I I think from this era, this is the strongest one. It, it has to be either this or The Man Who Knew Too Much are his strongest from this uh, British pre-Hollywood era right after the silent films. Um... Should I give the plot description this time around? Um, if you would, please. So our main character in The 39 Steps is Richard Hannay. And he is at a show where this man named Mr. Memory is performing. And he can memorize all these extreme obscure details. And right in the middle of the show, a gun goes off and someone is murdered. And he runs out of the theater. It turns out it was this woman. And she's in his flat. She explains to him that she knows this secret. And now that he knows that she knows this secret that he doesn't know, he his life is now on the line as well. She is murdered the next morning. He is accused of her murder and he's on the run for the rest of the film uh, on the run from the spies who are uh, the ones trying to kill him for knowing the secret on the run from the police because they think that he is a murderer. And, uh, yeah, then at the end, it turns out 
Mr. Memory from the beginning knows the secret and is able to give him the code and the secret right before he dies because he's shot. There's a lot of ridiculous stuff going on in this plot. I'm not going to sit here and give you a scene by scene. This is a movie you should go watch. And uh, and it really will not affect your enjoyment at all to know the ending like that. And then there's the other main character, Pamela, who doesn't join until maybe halfway through in a really meaningful way. But she becomes the buddy on this buddy cop sort of adventure. Yeah, this movie has such a large range of characters and there's so many memorable faces and memorable performances and it's really just a pleasure to watch. Yeah, because when he's on the run, he uh, stays with some Scottish like sheep farmers. Right. Uh, there's another part where he, in a case of mistaken identity, has to give like a political speech. And those are fun characters, too. Have I ever talked to you about my introduction to the 39 Steps? Never. So my senior trip in high school, I was in a theater school. So my senior trip. That next summer was to go to New York and we saw so many shows. I had a phenomenal time. On top of the shows that the school paid for, we were also suggested to go down to this pier where you can get really cheap tickets for off-Broadway shows and try and see a couple more that weren't in our itinerary. And I saw one and it said Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps. And I was already a huge Hitchcock fan. And I thought, this sounds great. My dance instructor and another person who was in my class, I can't, I think it's, I think it was Daniel. I can't remember. We were the only three that wanted to go. So we went and saw the off-Broadway production with the original off-Broadway cast. This play is the most hilarious thing I have ever sat through, but it is only four actors on stage. There's the main character. There's one woman who just flips in and out of costumes and plays every single woman and every other character in the entire movie is played by these two actors who are just killing it up there, constantly throwing on and off hats and coats. And when they're all in the train during the train sequence and they're selling, they're talking about the brassiers and stuff, all of the actors on stage are literally like shaking themselves up and down to mimic being on a train. I was <laughs> scream laughing the entire, pretty much as soon as it started. And I had never seen, it was one of the only Hitchcocks I hadn't seen at that point. And so I went and sought it out immediately and have never been able to take it seriously since, but I still love it. It's just, there are parts of it that I can't watch and not immediately associate with scenes that make fun of it in the play. You know, that's probably a good way to go into the film, though, because so much of it is comedic and kind of slapstick and very much screwbally. So. so that's a good way to think of this movie. It's kind of comedic. I mean, you've seen so many Hitchcock films. Can you point at things that are developing tropes that we start to see later on that he really masters that this is sort of the start of? It's crack. I feel like this is so specific to this era. Truly, once Rebecca is made, his style and his sensibilities, because this, this film feels so crowd-pleasing. It feels like such a widely entertaining film, as opposed to later in his career, where he would literally say, you must torture your audience as much as possible. I wouldn't tie this film into that sentiment. You know what I mean? Um... Well, it's funny because this movie is so similar in tone, style, and plot development to The Lady Vanishes, um, which 
is strange because it's the exact opposite as far as setting because the whole thing of lady vanishes takes place on one train and this movie seems to take place over the entire british countryside and then it also reminds me of north by northwest just having this bumbling guy who sort of accidentally stumbles upon things that are not a part of his life and is mistaken for another dude and then through all these coincidences ends up having to go on this huge adventure across the country so yeah, I mean, the bumbling protagonist, I mean, I wouldn't say that starts in this movie, just the unknowing but handsome protagonist who is able to think quickly on his feet, that's a huge part of Hitchcock movies. Uh, the audience knowing the bomb is there, you know, we know this movie is going to continue and somehow he's going to be folded into this spy plot, but the entertainment is that we have to watch him stumble into it and you know he doesn't know he's in a movie we do i mean the big one that i recognized immediately was the macguffin that's being used which it's not like hitchcock invented the idea of a macguffin but he uh pointed it out and when you see it in this film it's pretty obvious the secret that the spies are after that our main character is desperate to keep out of enemy hands i mean what is it? We don't we don't care. And it's something to do with airplanes, but it just keeps the plot moving. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I, I love the way the formula is given at the end. Don't worry about the details. He said some sort of formula, some sort of quadratic formula. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not what the movie's about. I don't think this was intentional or anything like that, but the fact that the plot and so much danger is derived from this sort of uh, mysterious thing that the main character doesn't really know about and doesn't understand uh, made the whole thing feel a little Kafka-esque. Did you feel that way? Yeah, definitely. Like this film felt very tense to me. The, the, the character is being chased the entire time and is always just wiggling out of things barely. And always running from something that doesn't quite make sense. We don't know why this information is really important. It's all a mystery. So despite the fact that the film is very fun and comedic, yeah, it still feels tense. You still feel like there's a real danger going on. And then it just fully turns into a wacky romantic comedy for 30 minutes with a married, with a married woman between our protagonist and a married woman. It does it does get almost frustrating that she won't believe him. But then when yeah. <laughs> the movie finally allows her to and gives her outside information, it feels really deserved. And it's so nice that there's this tension between them because she really doesn't know if she's going to be murdered or not. Because truly, the reason we're frustrated isn't because of her or her intelligence or anything like that. It's because we want them to be able to team up and do this together. And so... The movie lets you have both, you know, and uh, I really like yeah, that aspect yeah. of it. There's other tropes here. It's not like this is the first film to have a blonde female lead, but many Hitchcock films tend to have a blonde female lead. The same class that I wrote that paper on Metropolis for. I wrote a oh, yeah. paper on Hitchcock's blonde leads specifically about Tippi Hedren and the abuse she allegedly suffered while she was on set. And just how he became obsessed with his actresses, Grace Kelly mm. included. That's a little bit of a weird section of him as a person. And uh, something that definitely needs to be put in check. 
and acknowledged, but also the movies are still great. And Tippi Hedren gives incredible performances in his films. And she doesn't seem to regret giving those performances, but it is something that I think needs to be acknowledged. I think that The 39 Steps might be the first film that has a Hitchcock blonde. Is she not blonde in The Man Who Knew Too Much? Yeah, this is saying Madeline Carroll. The actress who plays Pamela in this film is the first blonde Hitchcock lead. No, yeah, she's definitely blonde in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Maybe it's just that she's not like a lead lead, but she's as much of a lead as that as Pamela is in this. Anyways. Mm -hmm. There's a Hitchcock cameo towards the beginning of this film, as there are in almost all of his films. I'm just going to Google it because I didn't. I was I was looking for it, but. (laughs) That was pretty good. It's just so funny to me. This is just a part of his style. I'm just going to pop up in all of my movies. Always at the beginning, too, because, well, apparently he didn't want the audience to be like wondering where he was or to be looking for him. He just wanted to get it over with really quickly. (laughs) That is so funny. It's like not only are you the reason this even exists, but now you're like, now you feel like you have to get it out of the way so people... (laughs) You know, it's like they wouldn't be looking for it if it weren't for you doing it in all the movies. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Um, yeah. Um, so when I said that this film feels like it's ahead of its time, especially compared to some of the other films we've been watching, that's not to disparage the other films that we've been watching. But I don't know the way that Hitchcock uses the camera and builds suspense and his characters here. Yeah, they all just feel like they're coming from an era of filmmaking that is a couple decades ahead. Maybe that's just because I've seen the Hitchcock films from a couple decades in the future. So I'm projecting that. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Especially as far as what you can do with entertaining an audience, with tension serving as your main source of entertainment. I think he is so ahead of the curve. I think that's the reason he's Alfred Hitchcock. You know, I think that's the reason he became famous. But The Man Who Knew Too Much came out right before The 39 Steps. And that one's just as entertaining and just as thrilling. And Lady Vanishes was only a few years later. And then Rebecca was five years later. And Rebecca truly is the moment his career fully turned around. And he was starting to get huge budgets and able to do much bigger films. And I think Rebecca is a masterpiece when it comes to tension and making such a negative emotion as uh, dread be entertaining for an audience. Mm-hmm. And that would be something, of mm-hmm. course, he would go on to fully master in his other films. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't see this as decades ahead of its time, but I do see it as a huge, important stepping stone in his career. Um, yeah. And it's not like this film specifically is like the turning point or anything like that. That's not what yeah. I mean. Uh, Yeah, in general, I do think Alfred Hitchcock and his team are doing things with film that will come to define what film is and how you, like you said, entertain an audience through tension, through dread. Yeah, this film feels different from the other films that we've been watching. Yeah, I would definitely agree. This one, you put a bright gloss of color paint over it and put it in widescreen and have it star like, I don't know. Who's like a charismatic actor working today? 
Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. You know what's funny? That was literally the first name that came to my head, and then I thought, he's too old. Mm. I'm not kidding. That was the first name that came to my head, was Hugh Jackman. He's a charismatic guy. Yeah, that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I guess it sounded bad. So yeah, put Hugh Jackman in there, and then like you could literally, with this exact same script, make a fun movie right now. And I don't know if that could be said of other films we've watched. And it's also just the way that the camera is moving. I know we've said in the past, like, oh, they're moving the camera. How innovative. Oh, those swivel shots. Oh, my gosh. And all the, like, zoom ins and stuff. It's so precise and just, oh, I love his aesthetic, man. I love Alfred Hitchcock. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much immediately into this film when there's the um, sequence of the character just purchasing a ticket and we follow him into the theater and he sits down like just the way that shot, the way the camera follows him so that we don't see his face so that we are establishing the setting that all just felt miles ahead of other filmmaking that we've seen from Hollywood films like Babyface um, or the public enemy. You know, this draws you in immediately and you're like, what's going on? And I want to know more. That cut from the, oh my gosh, that cut from the studio shot of them inside of the car, and then it whips out to a miniature. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. That shot is They're talking inside of the car, and you're like looking at them through the window, and then it whips out, and it's a miniature car. But your brain, like, I only knew that because I was looking at it specifically for that stuff. Yeah, it's a seamless transition. I don't understand how that was accomplished at all. Yeah, again, just like this stuff is ahead of its time. It, it looks more like a modern film and how modern films, uh, good modern films, photograph things. Yeah, I wish I wish that stuff still was done this way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes things are overly complicated or just not entertaining. But yeah, there's a simplicity here. It makes it look really easy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it looks completely flawless. You you fold right into the journey. You don't care about any of it. You're you're just so invested. <laughs> and when I when I say I wish other things still use this, I I think that making leaps forward in technology is a net positive for film. And I, you know, do think it's good, but I more just feel like there's a certain there's a certain craftsmanship there's a certain level of like artistic knowledge that is being lost and that's more what makes me sad. I don't want every movie to look like a Hitchcock movie or to be using all practical effects or anything like that. But I just, you know, I don't know how to make this movie. I have no idea how it was made, but I would just hope that anyone working in big budget, any director working on a big budget film would, you know what I mean? That's what I hope. Yeah. Yeah. The knowledge still exists. And this is still, he at this point is finally fully finessing his infamous shooting to edit style. Um, and you can really see it in this movie, uh, especially you'll just see there are certain shots where characters come through a door and then it cuts to a shot of them in another part of the room. And you can see it's like, okay, if an editor tried to be like, well, we got to cut this for time or that he'd be like, well, what would you cut? How would they get into the room? How are we here? There was a lot of scenes where I was really noticing that specifically, even the insert shots, for instance, when they zoom in on the man's pinky being gone, it's the only time his hand is anywhere close to that position or even really displayed in a prominent way in camera. So 
Like, there's only one place where you could put that insert shot. I think, I I don't know this for a fact, um, but I'm pretty sure The Man Who Knew Too Much was his first film where he fully did that. He was already trying to do that because he'd been getting frustrated with British censors saying his movies were too long, trying to cut things. Um, I know number 17 wasn't like that. That's one of the reasons that it doesn't really exist anymore because it was chopped up and there's a lot of stuff missing from it. So I'm pretty sure Man Who Knew Too Much was his first film where he really was trying to make that happen. And then, of course, uh, The Lady Vanishes is known for that being the entire style. The entire train is shot in a way that there's only one direction that they could possibly move. So they couldn't be asking him to move scenes around and stuff. And then that was his style all the way through to the end. Nice. Really fascinating stuff. Shooting for the edits. And he specifically said, like, I am shooting for the edit. Oh, yeah. He he got frustrated with the British censors and especially with people saying his films were too long because it wasn't a matter of their, their actual length, right? It was a matter of him waiting. He loves to just wait as long as he can to deliver that punch and to satisfy the tension. And, you know, producers watching are like, oh, people are going to get bored. Uh, we can't have this. And he got so frustrated with that that he started realizing, oh, if I shoot the films in a specific way that you could only edit them one way and they would make any sense, they can't ask me to cut anything. And he was right. (laughs) And it worked. (laughs) This film has what would go on to be sort of a rare instance of him using exterior locations. Pretty much once he was able to do everything on sound stages, that's what he did because he could control everything so easily. But this film has so many exterior locations and there's some trickery during the chase sequence that you can tell okay this is like a composite with a sky in the background but there is a huge shot of them chasing through this ravine right through this rocky formation that is very obviously the side of like an actual mountain or a hill or something and that was really fascinating to watch and realize because he he really he's a huge control freak probably a horrible person um but (laughs) but the art's good i was listening to a couple uh interviews with him uh in preparation for this and the way he talks is very strange it's very slow and draws you in you know what i mean oh yeah yeah i couldn't imagine working with someone like that get frustrating yeah one of my favorite things Albert Hitchcock ever made is his trailer for Psycho, which is just him leading you through the set of the house, and he's just talking in his slow, droll voice and explaining what happens in different rooms, and then he takes you to the bathroom, and he just opens the shower curtain, and the music comes out of nowhere, and the title jumps out at you, and it is a legitimate jump scare. It is so funny. I When I watched it as a kid, it really did make me jump and scream because I was just totally lulled into the fact, oh, his trailer for the movie is just going to be him going around and talking about the movie. And then it just comes out of nowhere and the music is so loud. I can imagine people in theaters screaming bloody murder. I know I would have. <laughs> Apparently, he was very fond of pranks in general. Like on set, he was always pranking people. Yeah. The concept in this film where the two main characters are uh, handcuffed together, the man and the woman. Apparently, he was doing that to people on his sets. That's so funny. (laughs) 
I'm allowed to be a control freak and get angry at everybody on set, but I'm also allowed to pull little pranks on you guys to drive everybody a little crazy. <laughs> he's like a fake person. He's like not real. He's, oh, he's yeah, he's a mythological figure. Like script. He's like scripted himself, and he talks in a way that heightens the drama of the situation and that kind of thing. Very much so. Yeah, it's so funny to be like, yeah, he's a control freak. Duh, because he also literally wouldn't let audiences around the world go into his movie after it started. <laughs> but yeah, I, I always think about Psycho. Do you know the reason why he put that rule into effect? No, this. No, I don't know. So the reason why Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't let people go into Psycho late was because producers were angry at him for killing off Janet Lee so early. And as I've already mentioned, he really hated producer interference of any kind. And they said, well, people who come in to the movie late or who are getting popcorn won't even know she's in it, won't even get to see her performance. And he just looked at him dumbfounded and said, people go into the movies late. And <laughs> they were like, yeah, it's very common. People will show up late to the movies and stuff. So he had all of these little um, cardboard cutout statuettes made. Uh, that were sent out with the film prints and rules were placed in theaters where you could not go into Psycho after it started. And that was not only his way of making sure people went to the movie on time, but also his way of satisfying the producers being upset that he killed off Janet Lee in the first 10 <laughs> minutes of the movie. <laughs> uh, that is funny. It reminds me of Drew Barrymore in Scream. How all the uh, advertising and posters were her front and center, and she's like the biggest person on the cover, even yeah. the most recent <laughs> Blu-ray release, and she's just. <laughs> but that movie is making even more of a joke because in Psycho, she at least has multiple scenes and a plot going yeah. on, and then dies. <laughs> That's literally one scene at the beginning of the movie. So good. So how about that review? Oh yeah, this is a really really positive review. Yeah, I, I love that already, even in the reviews from this time period, people are like, this guy's the real deal. Yeah, they even point out that the only other film that stands to rival this one in its melodrama is The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is also an Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah, the photoplay immerses a quite normal human being in an incredible dilemma where his life is suddenly at stake and his enemies are mysterious, cruel, and disparate. <laughs> so fun. There's that Kafka-esque. I like how they point this out. Perhaps the identifying hallmark of his method is apparent absence of accent in the climaxes. This is something that I appreciated, too. There's a lot of buildup. There's a lot of tension that is wound up. And that's where the entertainment is. That's where you're really drawn in. It's oh, yeah. not the big shootout. It's not the uh, loud moment. It's everything leading up to that. And I think that people who know about entertaining an audience know what drama is really focus on that more. I like that this reviewer here points out that the climaxes almost feel quiet. And I think there is a part of me that feels a little cheated, but also I was so entertained during it. I didn't really care. And also I'm not going to be critiquing Alfred Hitchcock today. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I, wish I wish we had known a little bit more about Hanny as a character, you know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. His, um, the women are poorly written. Um, what else? <laughs> <laughs> I actually think Pamela's great. Um, what a fun character. Yeah, I, I liked her a lot. This, yeah, this review is so good. 
All the players preserved that sureness of mood and that understanding of the director's attention which distinguished the man who knew too much. There are especially fine performances by John Lurie, Peggy Ashcroft, Godfrey Turrell, and Wiley Watson, who proves to be the hub of the mystery. There is a subtle feeling of menace on the screen all the time in Hitchcock's low-slung, angled use of the camera. That is something that I really noticed was that it's sort of subtle the way that everything builds tension or makes you feel a certain way. Like with German expressionist films, some of the stuff that we've been watching recently, like it's overt. It's very obvious what the film is trying to make you feel through its shadows and through its lighting and stuff like that. This feels like everything kind of blends together a little bit better in a way that won't take you out of the film and make you realize you're watching it. Mm. Again, that makes it sound like I'm harping on the other films like uh, The Blue Angel or Metropolis. And I'm not. Those They're just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the king of making images tell the story, you know, which is truly what I think should be the goal of film. Yeah, I, I think you could really watch this movie without the dialogue and you could totally know what was going on the whole time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might get a little confused when the old man starts like playing with lingerie in the train seat. But outside of that, I don't think you would be <laughs> thrown off by anything <laughs> happening in this movie. Yeah, so this review is just one of many just lavishing praise on this film. Everyone seemed to really love it. Oh, yeah. A huge success. This was a step towards him eventually getting major Hollywood budgets in a big way. Oh, so this is still a British film. He's still working in the British film industry, and he's not technically in Hollywood yet. Jamaica Inn was his last British film, and I haven't seen that one. So Lady Vanishes was, I guess, his last really big British film. Why do you think Hitchcock is so popular among the masses? Hmm... I think it is it it's it's almost like the satisfaction and thrill of watching a horror film without having to worry about gore, without having to worry about overt sex, without having to worry about the stuff that normally would come with horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who are really sensitive to horror films but still like them, you know, like that thrill. And he is the master of making that movie that I mean, Psycho really is a full-on horror movie, and it still is a very PG movie as far as its content is concerned. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think that's really what it comes down to, is people love to be thrilled and love to experience suspense, but also overall like to feel safe and entertained. And he's he rides that line in a way that nobody else ever has. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's horror films without the genre conventions, without the things that might turn off certain sections of the population. Reminds me of Parasite. I mean, everyone, not everyone, but I was hearing that Parasite was Hitchcockian. And it has the feeling of a horror film, but it's still not. Oh, yeah. It's uh, that sequence, especially when the kids having the flashback to the the man coming out of the staircase. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that film definitely rides that line. Bong Joon-ho, I think, is a natural successor to Hitchcock. I don't... Do you have anything else to say about 39 Steps? Not really. I should have really gotten my thoughts together today, but yeah, I just couldn't. But I'm so proud of this work. I'm so proud of everything I said. Uh, Nothing's coming to my mind. 
You know, this reminded me very much, and maybe it's just because I've been watching all of them, but of a James Bond film. And didn't you get that sense from the villain, especially like with his formal setting and inviting the protagonist in and deceiving him and then showing off his physical deformity with the pinky finger? Very James Bond villain, I felt. There was a Cold War sort of spy sensibility, Hmm. kind of because we're in an era that is almost like this sort of mini Cold War. And there are spies. It Mm. makes sense for spies to be running around and seeing who has the best, like, airplane bomber technology. How are they going to fight this upcoming war? But yeah, in just a couple years, uh, World War II is going to hit. That is super interesting, especially from a British perspective at this time. Yeah, and that might have been the other reason that I felt like it was so much like a James Bond movie, mm-hmm. just because everyone's uh, British. Right. Spies, British spies running around. And then he's getting chased by the cops and stuff, which is now like a staple of James Bond films. Wasn't always, but now he's always got to be on the run from the authorities as well as the bad guys. Okay, sorry for giving you such a mess to work with this week. <laughs> I'm looking Turn at my audio, on. and I will say it looks very evenly distributed. But I'm yeah. like, I know that there's like <laughs> whole chunks of this conversation that are not going to be in. But you don't want an hour and 48 minute episode about when we couldn't find a way to talk about the 39 steps. <laughs> All right, what are we watching next week? Next week, we'll be watching Things to Come, written by H.G. Wells, directed by William Cameron Menzies. Oh, the set designer that we've already talked about. See, yeah, totally planned. Um, You planned it. (laughs) I'm just just on the roller coaster. Uh, I'm the one screaming really loud at the front. (laughs) Um, It is available to watch on Amazon Prime, the Criterion Channel, Tubi, Canopy, and other services as well. And as always, we will have in the show notes a link to exactly where you can watch it. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next week, Arthur. It's been a pleasure discussing the 39 steps with you today. I think I'm going to go watch a couple more Alfred Hitchcock films. You should watch The Lady Vanishes. Great follow-up to this one. I think The Lady Vanishes and North by Northwest are on my list. Mm-hmm. I will tell you what I thought of them next week. Yeah, and then any others you haven't seen also within the next week, please. Oh, yeah, the other 50. Got it. Thanks again to Nathan Royal for our show's music. If you're enjoying A Century in Cinema, we'd love if you took a second to help support the show. And the easiest way to do that is to subscribe, give us a little rating for those internet algorithms, leave a little review, and to recommend us to someone else who likes movies. Thanks a lot to you, our listeners, and we'll have a new episode next week. 